This morning for the scripture reading is found in Isaiah 45, uh, verses from uh, 8 to 10. Drop down, ye heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open, and let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth, What makest thou, or thy work, he that has no hands? Woe unto him that said unto his father, What begettest thou, or to the woman, What hast thou brought forth? May the Lord add his blessings to these words. Today's scripture is being read from 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6. It's uh, page 1067 in your pew Bible. Therefore, since through God mercy, we have this mystery. We do not know lose, we do not know lose heart. Rather than we have renounced secret and shameful ways, we do not we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled for those who are perishing. The the God of this age was blinded by the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as the servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out in darkness, made, this, made his light shine in our hearts to give us this light of knowledge of God's glory and display in the face of Christ. I'm reading uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 to 18, also found on page 1067 of your pew Bible. But we have a treasure in jars of clay to show that this is surpassing power in is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we are alive are always being given over to the death of Jesus over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body so then death is at work in us but life is at work in you it is written I believe therefore I have spoken since we have that spirit of the faith we also believe that therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us 
with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All this is for our benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Through outwardly, though outward, outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us and for us an internal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since we have seen is temporary, but is unseen is in, is eternal. Thank you, and have a good, a happy Sabbath. My theme has been resurrection life. In this post. Resurrection Sunday season, what the world calls Eastertide. What does it mean to live out the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What, what, is, what implications does that have for me here and now? I think it's an important question because if the resurrection life makes only a difference at the moment of resurrection, and I won't know for certain of the moment of resurrection until I enter that moment, it's not clear to me what, other than possibly some faint hope, the resurrection really offers. But in fact, it offers two major things to us. It offers us resurrection life in the here and the now, and it offers us the certainty of resurrection in that time in which Jesus comes yet again. You see, the whole world is Adventist, whether they know it or not. That is to say, the Christian world. The whole world believes Jesus came as a baby in the flesh. That's Advent. And an Adventist is somebody who believes that Jesus has come in the flesh, and just as importantly, that he's going to return again as one resurrected in flesh. This resurrection body will return and grant with us all life. And so therefore we have hope. I get that. But I'm the kind of guy who says, okay, that's great for when I get close to death. It could be close to death today. I don't know, but it doesn't feel like it. You probably are in the same boat. We all know intellectually that anything can happen to us at about any time. A stray meteor could hit this church in the next five minutes and wipe many of us out. But it's unlikely, isn't it? like maybe one in a trillion or one in 20 trillion or something. I don't know. I never, never win anything anyway, so I feel extra safe. <laughs> so when you look at it that way, uh, yes, yeah, something could happen. We, we, we have that in the back of our heads. Uh, we could find out that a course of disease has begun in our bodies that isn't likely to, to do anything but damage. We could find out that... Uh, much to our, our shock, uh, a car is coming at us across lanes, and that could be the last thing that we remember. And that would make resurrection hope for our families very precious indeed. But for most of us, the threat of our mortality is something we put off and hold as future. And so the question becomes, what does resurrection life mean for me today? 
That's an important question to me. Out of curiosity, just because I believe that I'm relevant to some part of the time, which means I'm irrelevant to others part of the time, is this a question that may have meaning for you as well? No. Oh, yeah, good. I'll give you a little more time. A few more? Anybody else interested? Yay. Okay, good. So we have some, anyway, for whom this is a relevant question. I want you to turn to Exodus 34 because I want to read a passage there that we're going to just refer back to. Uh, Paul makes a very, very interesting theological point in 2 Corinthians, which we just read. Uh, We were reading in 4, but he makes this point in 3, which is part of the context of what we're going to be addressing. I want to have all of this kind of laid out for you so that the pieces come together in Paul's complex argument here. Exodus 34, give me a moment to get there myself. Some of you may recall that there were two sets of commandments written. The first shattered when Moses realized that the Israelites had turned back to the god Baal, Baal. But there was a second set of stone tablets made. Moses carved the tablet, and God wrote on it with his hand. We find in verse 29 an interesting story of what Moses looked like when he came back from the mountain. Now let's back up to 28. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, this echoes what? Moses being on a a mountain in wilderness, as it were, for 40 days and 40 nights receiving the word of the Lord. What does that echo in your mind? Jesus. What does Jesus do as he begins his ministry? Goes to the desert for 40 days or 40 nights. Does he eat or drink according to tradition? No. So this echoes and uh, previews what Christ will do. Now, we say that the Ten Commandments, just so you're following me, the Ten Commandments are the Old or New Covenant. They're part of an Old Covenant. We don't think they're invalid. We don't, as some Christians believe, believe they're nailed to the cross. It's always interesting to ask such Christians if they would care then if you burglarized their home or killed their dog or slept with their spouse. Uh, very quickly you find that they believe in the, in the Ten Commandments, just not the fourth one. Very quickly you find that the rest of Christendom still thinks the nine of the Ten Commandments are valid, it's just the fourth one that doesn't apply. Okay? So we're not talking about Old Covenant in terms of something that isn't useful to us or isn't valid. The Ten Commandments still have their place, don't they? But we're talking about something that's part of uh, an Old Covenant in that it predates what we would call the New Covenant, in which God states explicitly that he's not going to write his law on tablets of stone, but that he writes them where? In, In our hearts. In other words... There's not an external pressure or an external force guiding us to some sense of religious purpose. It's internalized within us. 
God, through His Spirit, is in us, leading us, teaching us, guiding us, directing us, and we are in total harmony. Because we are in Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law and didn't wipe away a jot or the tittle of it until he, that's punctuation marks, by the way, did not even take so much as punctuation of the law away until he had fulfilled it, nor did he take it away after he fulfilled it. He simply fulfilled it. Because we are in Christ, we have also fulfilled the law. That's, that's part of what we have to understand. It isn't that we have individually kept the law or achieved a righteousness. It's that the righteousness of Christ is applied to us. In Christ, we have kept the law. Does that make sense? Okay, we're on board with that. That's part of the gospel, the good news. And it ties into what's happening here. This is part of the old covenant. And I want you to pay attention to what happens with Moses here. 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. I can only imagine what any of us would look like after 40 days of communicating with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, radiant and they were afraid to come near him. God is a consuming fire, and no man may see him and live. That's the reality of our great and glorious God. And Moses is there in his presence 40 days and 40 nights. And unrighteousness cannot abide righteousness. Unholiness and sin cannot abide righteousness and perfection and divine glory. And Moses coming back from this incredible time with God, this sustaining and invigorating time with God, human beings do not live 40 days without water. They do not. It is absolutely, scientifically, irrefutably, undisputably impossible. Are are we clear on that? It does not happen. Most human beings die three to four days without water. Some human beings have been known to go seven, eight, nine, ten days, even a little longer without water under certain circumstances. But I'm here to tell you, any of us in a desert with no water whatsoever, not drinking any water whatsoever, would not make it a week. So Moses, in order for Moses to live on this mountain, 40 days and 40 nights without food or water, requires what? God's sustaining presence. God is his food. God is his water. God is his nourishment. God is his sustenance. God is his life. That's that's the only thing I can tell you. It's the only mystery I can offer. Because I can tell you also, the vast majority of human beings are not going to make it 30 days without food, let alone 40. Nourishment is required. Our body is constantly consuming energy. And nourishment is required. So these time frames that were given for these fasts of food and water are, are not humanly possible. They're extraordinary. They're part of a mystery. They're part of God's capacity to sustain. 
So I just, I just want to make clear. And by the way, I don't recommend sustained fasts without food and water. I don't think that is uh, spiritually commendable. Go without food for a day. Don't go without water. Or give up water for the morning and afternoon and drink a gallon in the evening if you must. Verse 31. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. When he came out, he told the Israelites what he, what he had been commanded. They saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went to speak with the Lord. It's a remarkable passage. This is a, just a, a wondrous thing that Israel got to behold in this moment. And Paul takes this in 2 Corinthians. Don't turn to 1st. It won't help you. For a moment there I tried and was terribly confused about what I was preaching about today. And I said, ah, yes, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes a very interesting argument starting in chapter 3. And I'm going to have to pick up somewhere, and just for the sake of picking up somewhere, I think I'm going to pick up in verse 4. Bear with me as I read through this section and see if you catch uh, some of the inference here. Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, this is the preamble to the argument that I'm going to give you momentarily. What gives life? Is it a small s spirit? No, we're not talking about rah, 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 team spirit. We're talking about spirit as in what? Holy Spirit, energy of life, the gift of God, this presence. Spirit gives life, but letter kills. What's letter? That which is written, referring, referring to what? The law. We refer to the letter of the law, and we refer to the spirit of the law, right? And they're not the same thing, are they? They're not. The letter of the law acknowledges the infraction regardless. The spirit of the law looks at the intent of the law and acts, asks if the action is in fact a violation of the intent of the law. Or if there's some superseding precedent or need. Let's think about Sabbath keeping for just a moment. Jesus looks at the spirit of the law and says, if your ox is in the ditch, what are you going to do? You're going to pull it out. Why? Because the spirit of the law isn't meant to prolong or promote suffering. The spirit of the law is to give us rest and peace. And so for the ox and for the owner of the ox, it's critical that he be pulled out of the ditch. This is not a violation of Sabbath-keeping, even though it involves work. 
Letter of the law, spirit of the law. Spirit gives life, letter brings death, according to Paul. So now we go to the glory of the new covenant, verse 7. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, what is Paul referring to? The Ten Commandments bring death. Isn't that an interesting thing? Here it is, a covenant made with God and his people. Here it is something Moses carries off the mountain after 40 days and 40 nights in the presence of the Lord, and it's considered that which brings death by Paul. Why is that? It's because we've never successfully kept it yet. Not one of us. And what, where there is no law, is there sin? No, not if sin is the transgression of the law. I'm being kind of technical. I think one could argue there might be sin in some greater sense. But in terms of violation of the law, if there's no speed limit, does it matter if you're going three miles an hour or 103 miles an hour? No, very good. It doesn't matter. But if it's posted 40 and you're going three, or it's posted 40 and you're going 103, are you likely to have a problem with someone in law enforcement? You are. And you're certainly violating the spirit of the law either way as well because you're, you're violating all sense of safety that, that goes with that sense of the thing. So here it is, this thing that comes from God, Paul is saying is death. All right? So we get to this, this thing. If the ministry that was brought that brought death, was engraved in letters and stone, came with glory, so that Israelites could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns men is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison to the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts forever? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it, gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. And here's the interesting argument but their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever, one, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the, Lord, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." I love that passage. Paul is saying that those who are stuck under the law, those who've not accepted the glory of Christ, those who've not accepted the righteousness of Christ, those who've not taken away the veil, have a limited and fading glory. But for those who have the Spirit, they have freedom and they have life. Now we get to today's text.
only 12.03. We'll get there. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. What ministry is Paul referring to? The ministry of the old covenant in the veil or the ministry of something else? Ministry of the new covenant and the letter or the spirit? Ministry of the spirit. Man, you're doing good today. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, we plainly commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. This is resurrection life. Is that clear? It's a revelation to me. I never thought of it this way. This is the resurrection life Paul is talking about. There is no veil. The curtain's been torn. The glory doesn't have to be hidden any longer. The glory is Christ. And we are revealed in that glory as we die with him and are resurrected with him as we live and have our beings in him and the gospel we preach is not veiled it's not hidden it's it's not deceptive it's clear the god who created is the god who sustains the god who sustains is the god who has loved the god who has loved is the god who emptied himself into human form, lived, breathed, died, cruelly. The God who died cruelly lived perfectly, never violating spirit, always living in light, never choosing darkness. This God who transcends sin, transcends death, which is the penalty of sin, and in him is life, and that life is the light of all of us. For he was resurrected on the third day and ascended and sits at the right hand of God. And our gospel is simple, and it's clean, and it's pure. The God who created is the God who redeems and the God who intended for us to be in community with him and one another for eternity makes it possible and calls us to resurrection life today, here and now. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. We have a song, I am the potter, I am the, I, you are the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me. We have that song, Have Thine Own Way. The pot is not a precious vessel. I can tell you, 
anywhere in Greece, anywhere in Turkey, anywhere in Israel. You go to any site of any kind of antiquity or any dump miles from any site that was part of any antiquity and you'll see a billion potsherds. A billion. They're worthless. They're just old bits of clay. You don't know if they're part of a brick. You don't know if they're a piece of a tile that was on a roof. You don't know if they were a plate or cup that got broken for ceremonial reasons or if they were part of some ornate and beautiful vessel. You just know that what you see is a little broken piece of clay. This treasure of the glory of God emptied into human form this treasure of this gospel, this new covenant we had, which is not veiled, this treasure of a God who reveals himself now to us in Son and Spirit is carried in vessels of jars of clay, worthless things. And this to demonstrate God's power, not our own. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then... Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. His life, his resurrection life is revealed in you. Paul was speaking now of the challenges of his ministry, particularly in Corinth. It's not a particularly uh, welcoming and receptive place initially. All of these things he experiences in the way of criticism and challenge to his ministry and challenge to his apostleship and challenge to his gospel. And he says, I'm pressed, but not crushed. For the power of God transcends whatever's happening to me. Can you say that in your life? i got to tell you, my pastor's note is relevant in this. It has been the hardest two months of my career in terms of the challenges that I've faced. The character assassination, the criticism, the stupid and cruel things people have said, the way in which my friends have been maligned or hurt or affected. It's been a very difficult time as chairman at Glendale Academy very difficult. But I'm not discouraged. I'm not crushed. I know what this passage means experientially these days. I know what Paul is experiencing because it, I'm mortal. I'm but a vessel of clay. I can be broken and have and will be. But it doesn't diminish the power of the life within. It doesn't take away the power of resurrection and spirit. It doesn't affect that. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. For it is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Boy, did Paul say a mouthful there. 
You know what the really amazing thing about liars are? And you've all been liars. Is that we're so good at lying that we believe it's the truth half the time. And if we don't believe it initially, we tell it often enough that we eventually believe it's true. We tell ourselves, oh, I really couldn't have done any better in that situation. It's a lie. We probably could have. Oh, I've really been patient with this person. It's probably a lie. We could have been more patient. We're self-deceived in every way, are we not? Oh, come on, I'm not really running you into the ground here. You're in good company. We're all self-deceived. That's why it hurts so much and why we get so angry and so rebellious and why we lash out so much when somebody holds a mirror up to our faces. Yes? We begin to believe our own lies. And Paul says it bluntly. I believed, therefore I have spoken, but he's not referring to lies. He's referring now to the work of faith. And if what I just said about lying is true, then what I'm saying about faith is even more true if we take the Pauline argument. When we take something that we believe, a statement of faith, a reflection of a mystery, and we put it to word... We give it body, we give it flesh, we give it power, we give it form. Faith begins to grow in confession. Does that make sense? So this opportunity before us as a body is one to grow in faith because together we affirm the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that he lived a life perfect before God, that he acted in a way that Adam did not, proving himself faithful, that the ransom that the devil required for humankind to be delivered back to God was the life of God himself and Jesus Christ paid that ransom. I believe that he could not be suppressed in the grave and on the third day rose again. And I believe that he declares to all of us the power of that resurrection. That if we will give up our lives in him and declare our affinity, our faith, our purpose in him, he will give us life. That's what Paul says. It's as affirming a statement as I can find. With that same spirit of faith, we also believed and therefore spake because we know that the one who raised Jesus Christ, the Lord from the dead, will also raise us with Jesus and present with you, excuse me, present us with you in his presence. All this for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Yet inwardly, 
we are renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs it all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen, and I add this comment, as the glory of Moses veiled is fading, temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. In the commentary on verse 16, it says this, Because of the inextinguishable flame of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ burning within we are not wasting away but are renewed every day it may not be my most practical sermon ever but in our affirmation of faith in our declaration of hope in our willingness to die with Christ we are resurrected and share in his glory and by it our renewed living resurrection life every day day to day and now because of this grace we have received let us be faithful to our God who calls us to remember him in our stewardship and in our generosity. The deacons will now wait on you. And so may it be, Lord, thy grace and love in us reveal as we live out your resurrection life with gratitude and hope and peace. Amen.